Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. This week, the much-anticipated trial of Elizabeth Holmes, the founder of blood testing company Theranos, kicked off with opening arguments. She's been accused of knowing that the company's new tech and blood tests were unreliable, harming patients, and overstating the company's performance. The prosecution is trying to portray her as a fraud who lied and cheated to get more money. And the defense is trying to humanize Holmes, saying that Theranos failed as a business and that failure is not a crime. For more on the opening of this trial that's expected to last about three months, we'll speak to Ben Popkin, senior business reporter at NBC News. You know, this trial really puts Silicon Valley on trial. The whole MO of move fast and break things. You know, it's one thing when that is happening with a new technology company that is optimizing some piece of software, but it's another when you go from that unregulated sector to the highly regulated medical device sector, you're dealing with real lives, real people, real problems. So Elizabeth Holmes, her promise was she would run you know, over 200 tests at Theranos on people's blood that could be drawn with just a finger prick instead of those intravenous blood draws we're used to when you go to the doctor. Uh, this was going to revolutionize blood testing. It was going to be faster, cheaper than traditional blood testing. It was going to disrupt the market. It was going to make it so people could be more empowered and they would be more likely to get tested and find out if they had diseases. She wanted to change the world. And she dropped out of Stanford at 19 to pursue this vision. She poured her life savings into it, kept going. And eventually she was able to get some pretty you know, high stakes investors in there. George Schultz, Henry Kissinger, uh, Betsy DeVos, former education secretary, raising over $700 million. And the company was valued at $9 billion. She became uh, the first self-made female tech billionaire and was gracing the covers of uh, glossy business magazines. This is really a a story of, of the moment. And then it all came crashing down. Medical experts started raising some um, skepticism about how the technology worked. The company didn't release it. Data was very secretive. And uh, Wall Street Journal reporter John Carreyou began reporting a series of skeptical articles 2015, 2016, raising questions about the validity of Theranos' tests and promises. And then it kind of all came crashing down. SEC investigated the company's uh, net worth went down to zero. They were charged with a fraud conspiracy to commit wire fraud. Now she's in trial, faces up to 20 years in prison. Now uh, we've had opening statements and it's really the prosecution is really trying to make her out to be a big liar. The company was running out of money, <laughs> running out of time to really prove that the technology was working and that she was lying at any cost to further the business. In the opening arguments, we really saw kind of this battle of two personas being offered. And the question for the jury is, Elizabeth Holmes, is she a fraud or is she flawed? So the government clearly pursuing the former, uh, trying to cut through the hype and noise that had been building before this trial. She had had a baby a month before. There had been allegations raised about her former business partner. But they said, this is a case about fraud, about lying and cheating to get money. That's what U.S. Attorney William Leach said. They laid out the timeline and said every time she met with an obstacle, she kind of came up with a, a bigger lie. 
to get around it. For instance, saying the company was on track to make a million dollars when it was only making a few hundred thousand. Doctoring a report that Pfizer had sent it to make it look to investors like they endorsed the company's practices. And they even, it was alleged they were running the blood tests on the machine's of theirs that didn't work, they were actually running them on unconventional machines. And, and those results were getting botched with one victim thinking that she was going to miscarry another, that he had prostate cancer. For their part, the defense, they're trying to present Holmes as a human. Flawed, failed, but not a villain. Failure is not a crime, the defense attorney Lance Wade said. Trying your hardest, coming up short is not a crime. And really laying out how this kitchen table idea developed and she was really trying to change the world and doing her best, but uh, it just didn't work out and she shouldn't you know, go to jail for it. And part of the case is obviously you have to show that she intended to mislead investors and doctors and patients and all that. But that's kind of what the defense is trying to do is say, well, she didn't really know. She was just more the face of the company rather than knowing you know, the intricacies of the technology that was left up to uh, the president and a one-time boyfriend of hers, an ex-boyfriend, Sonny Balwani. So, you know, he's another figure in this whole thing as well. The Holmes team successfully argued for their uh, trials to be severed. He'll be tried separately. So during the next four months, the defense is going to be able to lay a lot of claims against him. That's another wrinkle to this tale, and we'll see what happens there. Like you said, the defense is saying that Holmes, like another traditional CEO, is not responsible for the actions of, of its agents. But the government is going to show that what they're trying to assert is, you know, she was in complete control of this company. The buck stopped with her. If anything, she was the controller in the relationship with Balwani rather than the other way around. But we'll see what the jury says about that and um, what the defense is trying to do in terms of uh, we've learned just today that they're moving to block some of the testimony of the company's former controller. There's more of these sort of tabloid details. Uh, Former controller Denise Yam, she was expected to testify about how Holmes had allegedly used corporate funds to make $2,000 purchases from jewelry stores using company funds for private jet travel. The defense said the judge had had barred this. The government said they're, they're going to abide by the guidelines around how that is used. And and Denise Yam for herself, right? She had to justify all those purchases and had to go up to Holmes and ask her, hey, why are you making these purchases? This trial is expected to last mm-hmm. like three months, they said. It's going to be a long time. They have a huge list of potential witnesses, including Elizabeth Holmes herself, could possibly testify. Everyone is watching to see if she will testify. She's on uh, her own witness list, and that is a risky move. Uh, experts say that opens up her up to cross-examination by the prosecution, and they're not going to pull any punches. But at the same time, it seems you know, Elizabeth Holmes, she was a mesmerizing presence. Uh, you can see that in videos. She stares people in the eye. She... <laughs> speaks with conviction, uh, a deep baritone that people say was an affectation. She has a way of winning people over. So the defense may be betting if she's able to convince people like Henry Kissinger and Walgreens executives to invest in her company, she should be able to handle a jury of her so-called peers. Yeah. Ben Popkin, senior business reporter at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. We're also in the final days of the recall election for California Governor Gavin Newsom. And so far, we've been seeing a healthy turnout for Democrats. Lots of money is being spent on ads, and big national figures are supporting Gavin Newsom, including President Biden. 
This Tuesday is the last day to cast a ballot, and recall proponents are hoping for a big in-person Election Day push. For more on the final days of the recall, we'll speak to Melanie Mason, national political correspondent at the LA Times. Since we have people already returning their ballots, I mean, it's kind of more of a recall month than a recall election day. That sort of offers us a couple of tea leaves that we can look to to sort of get a read of how we think that this race is going to shake out. And so I think the first thing is that we are seeing ballots coming in and what we're seeing are Democrats having a commanding advantage uh, in the ballots that have already been returned. Now, some of that is to be expected. We expect Republicans are more likely to be returning their ballot either in person or voting in person on the 14th. So we expect things to even out a little bit. But really, for those who wanted to see Gavin Newsom recalled, what they needed to see was a relatively low turnout election. The fact that we are seeing this lead among Democrats in returning their ballots means that that's almost certainly not going to be the case going to be a high turnout election. And in a state like California, which overwhelmingly tilts blue and Democrats have a 5 million voter registration advantage, a high turnout election is good news for Governor Newsom. An interesting number uh, that you put in the article, one of the um, people you spoke to predicted that Democrats would need about a 1.3 million ballot cushion going into Election Day to, you know, offset anybody that's going to be voting on this on the day and turning in their ballots pretty late. Currently, they have about 1.84 million ballots returned more than Republicans. That's a pretty decent number to be looking at right there. I think that if you are uh, Gavin Newsom's campaign manager, you're very happy to have that cushion. I think one of the caveats that we should mention is that we know sort of the party affiliation of the ballots that are being returned, but we don't actually know how individuals voted, right? So there is a possibility that Democrats have decided that they're fed up with Gavin Newsom, they're interested in trying something new, and that they're voting yes on question one, on the question of if he should be recalled. But I think that what we've seen from polling throughout the state, really consistently throughout the year, is that there hasn't necessarily been a huge appetite among Democrats to recall Gavin Newsom. Newsom's problem in the middle of the summer, when things looked a little dicey for him, was that Democrats just weren't really engaged at all. And so unless we see sort of large-scale defections of Democrats from Gavin Newsom, I think the fact that we are seeing Democrats have this cushion when it comes to ballots returned so far, likely, but not definitely, means good news for the governor. President Biden is going to be campaigning for Gavin Newsom as well. That's going to be an interesting test of political power for the president as well, uh, you know, to see what happens there. Absolutely. I think that uh, Governor Newsom's team really wanted to see this race nationalized as much as possible as a way to really juice up Democratic turnout. But we've seen Vice President Kamala Harris uh, is in San Francisco on Wednesday uh, trying to rally for her longtime political ally slash enemy slash frenemy. They have a very interesting relationship. (laughs) Um, Now we have President Biden likely coming out to some. Today we actually saw news that former President Barack Obama just cut a television ad on behalf of Governor Newsom. And so we are seeing sort of the Democratic establishment in the nation, not just in the state, really galvanized. And I think that that is most likely to Newsom's benefit because it is another way to maybe wake up some Democrats who haven't really been paying attention and convince them to turn in those ballots. How about money in this campaign? Uh, it seems that Gavin Newsom has spent about $36 million so far, him and his allies, I guess. They're spending so much more money than the recall proponents. Yes, and I think that that's another way where you see some institutional advantages uh, on the governor's side, partially because of the function of 
the recall campaign finance system, he can collect unlimited size checks. And so we've seen massive checks by his political allies being written to him. He can also coordinate with labor unions um, and other sort of well-funded allies that in a normal campaign season, there would be campaign contribution limits and there would be sort of firewalls between these independent efforts. Now they can sort of throw all that money together in a pot. They can combine all of their forces on the field. Uh, and what you have for some of the folks running for the recall, if they want to be to replace the governor, is that you have not seen the Republican Party or pro-recall proponents coalesce around one person. There seems to be a front runner in Larry Elder, the uh, radio talk show host. But even still, that's somebody who's maybe garnering around 20 percent of the vote in those polls. And so that does not necessarily mean gigantic sums of money that they're being able to rake in. And that makes it much harder for them to advertise on television, which in a state like California really is necessary. And for the proponents of the recall, what are they hoping for? I mean, obviously, they need a big turnout. But as you mentioned, Larry Elder, some have said that he's kind of he might be hurting the recall effort now from uh, past statements that he's made. You know, so what are the proponents looking at uh, for success? I think that part of the issue is that you have a pretty fractured field of proponents, right? I mean, you had a sort of scrappy band of activists get together to get this recall on the ballot and really, I think, defy a lot of the predictions from political pundits. Uh, They they got it done, um, much to the surprise of Gavin Newsom. But then since there hasn't been necessarily, there has not been a, a Republican Party endorsed candidate, for example. So you have lots of different candidates who are running on different messages. Larry Elder has leapt to the top of the field in part because he does have name recognition, particularly among Republicans in the state. He has been on the air, on the radio for quite some time. But with the good also comes the bad, right? He's somebody who's very recognizable, but he's also never been a political candidate before. So all of a sudden, we have all of these past statements that he's made. He's given some national interviews that perhaps have had some controversial comments in the last couple of weeks. And so Elder both is great in terms of exciting the Republican base, which I think that recall proponents want to see in order to get that yes on recall vote out. But then there's also perhaps the flip side, which is that he might turn off some voters who might not be super thrilled with with Governor Newsom, but don't love the things that Larry Elder is saying. So those are both the pros and cons of being a lightning rod. Melanie Mason, national political correspondent at the LA Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. This coming week on September 15th, we'll also see another ambitious space flight from the private sector as we see the first all-civilian mission to orbit the Earth. SpaceX's next crewed mission will be called Inspiration4, and the crew members will orbit the Earth for three days. They'll conduct science experiments and fly higher than the International Space Station. For a preview of this next big space mission, we'll speak to Miriam Kramer, space reporter at Axios. So the mission is called Inspiration4. It's the brainchild of a guy named Jared Isaacman. Uh, and it came together really quickly. I mean, he, he sort of started to talk to SpaceX about this at the end of last year, and they announced the mission in February. The really interesting part about this mission to me, though, is that Jared, instead of deciding to kind of bring a crew of his friends along for the ride, he opened up the selection process to many, many, many people. I mean, one seat was chosen through a raffle, one seat was chosen through sort of a a funny like Shark Tank style competition for entrepreneurs. And then St. Jude, who's partnering on this mission as a fundraiser, chose the other astronaut that's that's getting to fly with with this crew. So just a very interesting selection process. On the St. Jude side, they picked a childhood cancer survivor who was treated by them. She's now a physician's assistant there at the hospital. The interesting for all, all of this, right, is obviously civilians. They're not astronauts by training. 
but they have been doing a lot of training for this. Well, you know, how, how, do, how does that work out? So since they were chosen in March and, and announced for the end of March, early April, they have been going kind of nonstop. I mean, they have been out to SpaceX almost every other week for a couple of the crew members to get trained up on everything that they need to know to live and work in space. They're only going to be up there for three days, but they need to basically be briefed on every system so that if something doesn't go exactly right, they'll be able to fix it. So they've been they've gone through centrifuge training, which basically simulates what it would feel like to launch. They have done water rescue training for when they splash down and come back to Earth. And they even did a 30-hour simulation at SpaceX headquarters where all of them were in close quarters in the Dragon simulator, the capsule simulator. That's an exact replica of what they'll be flying in space. And they lived in it for 30 hours together. So they, they you know, have gotten <laughs> wow. to know each other very well. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. This uh, launch is going to be on September 15th, right? It will, yeah. And then what is the actual mission going to consist of? So a lot of it is going to be them doing some science experiments up there. I think they're going to try to, you know, probably talk to the kids at St. Jude, maybe do a, a few media events. But I, I think a lot of it is going to be them, like, taking pictures, looking at Earth, like experiencing what life is, is like in space in this small capsule together. I mean, I think that they're excited about learning what it's like to sleep in space, what it's like to eat. Everything is going to be different. Yeah, they'll be orbiting Earth for about three days. And as I mentioned at the beginning, right, so we've seen the billionaires go into space or the edge of space, at least, right? These are for commercial flights that they're hoping to do. What is the hope for this type of flight, this type of mission? What, what would this lead to? Well, I think for SpaceX, their big goal is to eventually bring many, many, many people to Mars. Like Elon Musk has talked about wanting to build a city on Mars before. And this is the kind of mission that you sort of have to learn how to fly in order to do that. When you want to do something as ambitious as, as building a city on Mars, you're not just going to be able to rely on government trained and backed astronauts. It's going to have to be, you know, normal people. Like I remember Elon said something like, sort of funny and flippant in 2015, but that has resonated a lot. Like that's basically like, okay, if you're going to have a city on Mars, you need pizza parlors on Mars. You know, you need people to just sort of live there. So I think that this is the very, very first baby step toward understanding what it would take to make that a reality. And for SpaceX, what, uh, what are they using? What are the rockets they're using? What, are, what type of uh, flight equipment are they using? Yeah, so this is the Falcon 9 rocket. So their workhorse of a rocket has a great track record. It has flown people to space three times now. This will be the fourth crewed mission for SpaceX. Uh, and they're using a Dragon capsule that had actually previously been to the space station. But the interesting thing about this Dragon is they are modifying it. So instead of having a docking adapter at the top, which is what you need to attach to the space station, they're instead going to have this really cool, big bubble window that is, it, they're calling it the cupola. So it's going to be this like incredible 360 view of space. Wow. Like they'll be able to float around up in there and just sort of see what it's like. How much of this process is going to be automated? It will be. A lot of it is controlled from the ground. Usually people in the capsule don't need to take over unless something is going wrong or unless they want to. The Dragon has a lot of autonomous features, so it likes to fly itself in a lot of ways. September 15th, we'll be able to witness all of that. Miriam Kramer, space reporter at Axios, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. 
Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.